What a wonderful time of worship we're having. I want to continue that now, looking at God's Word, hearing what it has to teach us. I invite you to turn to Ephesians, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Last week we looked at what the general message of the book is, who wrote it, why it was written, who it was written to. I want to read 3 through 14. I won't be preaching on the whole passage this morning, but it is a continuous sentence in 3 through 14. It's one sentence in the Greek. It's 202 words in Greek. It's the second longest sentence in the New Testament. The passage focuses, and you'll hear it, it focuses on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what they've done for us, for believers in salvation. Starts off in verse 3 by giving a general reason to praise God, and then, then goes by Trinitarian person down throughout this paragraph. You'll see that Christ is referred to 15 times. 15 times in one paragraph, Christ is referred to in Christ, specifically the doctrine of of union with Christ, being in Christ, mentioned 11 times. So let me read the passage to you, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind attention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Oh Lord, we want to come before you and look at this mighty doctrine, all of these doctrines taught here over the next few weeks, Lord. Help us to praise you for them, to bless you because you are such a gracious God. And Lord, if this is a maybe some of our first time to look at this, I pray that you would help us to submit to the teaching of Scripture. Help us to love the teaching of Scripture. Help us to conform our minds, our hearts to the teaching of Scripture. We love your word here. We want to see it proclaimed. We want to learn from it. We want to agree with it. We want to come and be closer to Christ as we commune through the word of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have a lofty passage before us today. There are often books of the Bible that are mountain peaks of theology. They teach so much about God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit. And then occasionally in those mountain ranges, there are the highest peaks. And this is one of those passages. You see that it starts off with what the Father has done in election and predestination. It goes into what the Son has done on the cross as He redeemed us with the shedding of His own blood, that forgiveness of sins, that adoption that we receive. And the fact that we're sealed as believers, sealed by the Spirit, never to lose our salvation. These are great truths of Christianity, comforting truths of Christianity. And so Paul wants to start off his letter to the Ephesians reminding them of what God has done. What's already happened in their life. You'll recall last week I said that the first three chapters are the doctrine, what we should believe. And really, they already knew these things. He's reminding them. He taught in Ephesus for three years, so this isn't the first time they've heard this. But he's reminding them who they are in Christ, what God has done for them, how they have the Holy Spirit. The last three chapters of the letter deal with how we are to live that out, how we are to practice that position that's been given to us in Christ. And so he starts off here, not by slowly building up, but by starting at some of the highest peaks of 
theology, election, predestination. So I've, I've entitled the message today, Spiritual Blessings in Christ, Part 1, because the, the whole passage I read to you is about spiritual blessings in Christ. And the first thing we're going to look at is chosen by the Father. Chosen by the Father. I was a Christian for some years before I was exposed to passages like this. To my shame, I didn't continue reading the Bible after I was saved. I was in a very seeker church. They did not preach the Bible. They did not emphasize scripture reading. And at some point later, I heard of these things, election, God's choosing, predestination. That can't be in the Bible, I said. That's not what I've heard. That's not what I've been taught. And one of the first passages that I discovered, maybe the very first one, was this one from Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. And there it is, election, choosing, God's choosing, and, and predestination. And it's supposed to be something we praise God for. And after that, I was exposed to Romans, passages we'll look at today. And I had to agree with Scripture as a Christian. At some point, you have to just submit to what is being said in Scripture. And it became a, a rewarding experience, a comforting experience. I, I bowed my knees more often and praised God for saving me, a sinner. And I think that's the response Paul wants here. He, he wants us to praise God, bless God because of what he's done. So we're going to look at verse 3 and verse 4. And first of all, I want you to see in verse 3 the sovereign, the sovereign God who saves. The sovereign God who saves. Verse 3 is all about the blessed God, or the one who is blessed, the one who's praiseworthy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God is another way to say that. There's really not even a verb there in the original, and you'll see it's probably in italics in your Bible. It's, it's supplied because blessed is God. He is blessed, and we should bless him with our praise because of what he's done. He's praiseworthy, and he's sovereign. The only way he could bless us is because he is sovereign. He's a God who knows all things. He controls all things. He makes all things come into being. He's over all history. He's over everything that's going to happen in the future. And he's over everyone's personal salvation. If they are saved or will be saved. And Paul says, blessed be. Before he even gets into those doctrines, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to bless him. We ought to praise him for all the things Paul's about to list. And there's a lot, not just the the three persons of the Trinity, but... Each person of the Trinity has done multiple things in our salvation. And as we go through this, you ought to be praising God, blessing God, thanking God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to bless Him, we're to praise Him. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a bit strange for us to think that Paul could write that. The God of Jesus Christ. I thought Jesus was God. I thought Jesus is God. I thought Jesus always will be God. How can there be a God of God the Son? The focus here is not on denying the divinity of Christ. Paul would never do that. He's just declaring Christ's true humanity. Christ in the flesh submitted himself to God. We should submit ourselves to God. He's he's Christ's God. He's, He's our God. And Jesus said something very similar in John chapter 20, verse 17. You remember when Mary was clinging to him, Mary Magdalene? She wouldn't let him go after the resurrection. And he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. So we shouldn't be thrown off by the God of Christ Jesus. This is something he used himself. And he's saying, He's, he's my father, and he's also your father. If, if you're in Christ, he's your father. And Jesus says, he's my God, and he's your God. He's your God. You can come to him because he's my God. And notice Paul says, just in this first verse, he's just telling us who God is, and he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord, speaking of a personal relationship to him. If you're a believer, he's, he's your Lord. He's not the same relationship that everybody else in the world has that's an unbeliever. Yes, he's Lord of all creation, but he's personally your Lord if you're saved, if you're in him. Then he gives his personal name, Jesus. That's his his personal name. When he came in the flesh, when he was incarnate, he took on flesh and received the name. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, meaning he saves or God saves. 
And then Paul goes on to just list out this name, Lord. Speaking of his lordship, particularly, I think, in this letter over his church. He is Lord. We better listen to what he has to say. Listen to what he has to teach through his apostle Paul. And then lastly, Christ, which is a title. A title meaning Messiah. He's our Lord. He's our Jesus. He's our Messiah, who's promised in the Old Testament to bring salvation. Now, why? why? Why should we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you could probably think of many reasons, but Paul's going to lay them out for us. And he starts off with a general statement. Who has blessed us? He's already blessed us. If you're saved, if you're in Christ, he's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Every blessing which we enjoy comes from God the Father. But we can't attribute anything to man if it's good. It comes from God. I often tell my family, if, it's, if something good happens, then we attribute that to God. If something bad happens, that's our own fault because we often make dumb decisions. Well, God blesses us, though, with every spiritual blessing. And, and the, the blessings of salvation come through Christ. And the Father has given them to every believer. What are those spiritual blessings? Well, he's going to lay them out. But just in general... Everything good that you enjoy as a Christian that you could think of comes from God. James 1, 17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. If you've received something good, physical or spiritual, he's talking more here about spiritual, but, but even physical, that comes from God. You ought to praise him. You ought to... Bless him with your voice and with your heart and with your mind. And God has blessed us with every spiritual benefit that we need. That's what spiritual blessings are. Blessings in the spiritual realm. Spiritual peace. Salvation. You're going to notice throughout the the long paragraph that he's talking about the different things that took place in our salvation. And we have to praise God for that. Those are the spiritual blessings that have been given to us. He'll get into some others later in the letter, like the armor of God, for example. But... Here he's focused on salvation. What God has done for his people. He's blessed us with every spiritual benefit. Every one. He, he didn't leave one short. You've got to go find it somewhere else. Maybe this religion will add to my Christianity. Maybe mysticism will add a little bit. That's what the Ephesians were struggling with. Maybe paganism or something from the world will complete what God didn't complete. Every spiritual blessing. He's letting them know right off the bat. Don't go anywhere else for spiritual blessings every single one don't look elsewhere god is the blessed one who has blessed you with it already just to make that clear he says it's in the heavenly places in the heavenly places comes up a lot in ephesians that phrase five times it's going to come up in this letter let's go over to 120 so we can get an idea of what he's talking about what is this heavenly place is this the air is this the sky is this space is this where god is Chapter 1, verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So whatever it is, it's where Christ is now. It's where he's seated. Of course, he's seated in heaven in the throne room of God. And go over to chapter 2, verse 6. Talking about what we received in salvation here. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ is there and we're there. Not physically, but spiritually speaking. We are there. We are with Christ. It's so certain we're going to be there physically. We're already with him there spiritually. Where are the heavenly places? It's the place where Christ himself reigns. It's the place where Christ reigns. Specifically where he's at now, but also the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm. It It expands to that upon the earth. Because later Paul will talk about how there's evil forces in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm. Christ is still reigning, of course. That's allowed, those evil forces are allowed to go on in the heavenly places until Christ comes back. But he reigns over everything. It's a place where the riches are centered. Heavenly, in contrast to earthly. We don't look for earthly riches from Christ. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not true. It's not in Scripture. In fact, there's a good verse to disprove the prosperity gospel because it's coming from the heavenly places in Christ, not the earthly places. 
MacArthur Study Bible says this heavenly places is the realm of God's complete heavenly domain from which all his blessings come. So we could just say it's the supernatural realm that God reigns over. He reigns over the physical as well, but this is the, the supernatural realm where we receive the spiritual blessings. Think about it. If somebody said, show me Christ who's in you, it's not like you can produce him on the spot. Right? You can live out the commands that he's given you and try to show them Christ. You can't show them the spirit that lives in you. These are spiritual blessings that are unseen right now in the natural world. And then he continues. It's not only in the heavenly places, but in Christ. God has blessed us. We should bless God because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now this phrase comes up a lot. You, you saw when I read it how, how often it came up. Like I said, 11 times just in that paragraph. 30 times total in Ephesians. Paul is emphasizing the believer's union with Christ. It's not as if you get saved and Christ is in heaven and you're on earth. And there's some kind of distant relationship going on. No, we're, we're in Christ. The Bible says we're baptized into Christ. We're put in Christ. We're intimately connected to Christ. Not his physical body, that, that's in heaven. But in a spiritual way, in a spiritual realm, we are connected. We are put into Christ. The moment you're saved, you're put into Christ by the Holy Spirit. And all of these blessings come to you because of that. It's not like you can say you're a Christian, but not really be in Christ and get all these blessings. A false believer cannot have these blessings God is talking about here. It's only found in Christ. Union with Christ is required. Those who've been spiritually united with Christ at the moment of their salvation receive these blessings and continue to receive the one mentioned at the end of the Holy Spirit sealing us. What is Christ is now ours. All born-again believers will receive these blessings because we're in Christ. Not everybody's in Christ, which means not everybody will receive these blessings. You might think, well, that's obvious, but not really in our world today. People think they can get blessings from God in many different ways, through many different means, many different people, religions. You have to be in Christ. You have to have a new heart. In other words, looking at your own actions, you have to have repented and believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or you get nothing but judgment. These things mentioned in this long paragraph are not judgment. They're blessings. The good thing. The blessing is a good thing. Salvation. Eternal security. Election. A person who's never believed in Christ, never repented of their sins, is not in Christ. They can't claim to have received these. So if that's you today, I encourage you, just listen to what's being said here. Everything is about Christ. Everything is in Christ. You want these blessings of salvation? Then, then believe in Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your own method of salvation, good works, and turn to Christ. Children, you, you don't get spiritual blessings just because you grew up in a Christian household. You're not guaranteed spiritual blessings. Yeah, there are some blessings because your parents are saved. They protect you. They might teach you. But not these blessings mentioned here. So I encourage you, if that's you, to Make sure you're in Christ. Pray that God would do that work for you. Trust in Christ. Repent. So the whole point of verse 3 is that God is praised because he's, he's graciously given believers every spiritual benefit that we need. Every spiritual benefit. And it's in the heavenliness, the heavenliness of Christ. We ought to praise him for that. So that's Paul's general statement. Everything else after this verse will be more specific. What are those blessings? And he starts off with the first thing that has to occur and a person's salvation. Number two, in our outline this morning, the blessing of unconditional election. The blessing of unconditional election. Uh, election just simply means God chose. So we have elections for offices in our government. You go and you choose whom to vote for. But, well, God chooses, but it's unconditional. He's not looking for the best person out there. He's not looking for the most godly person. He's not looking for the, for the least wretched person. He's not looking for the smartest. In fact, Paul says that he didn't choose the wise, but he chose the ignorant in many ways. He chose the, the poor, not the rich. 1 Corinthians. Verse 4 is going to tell us the first reason why we ought to praise God. The, the first 
major thing God does in the process, in the order of salvation, is election. And it's unconditional. We haven't done anything for it. If we receive it, it's all of God's grace. That's a blessing that Paul tells us we ought to praise God for. So let's look at it in the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Here it is, verse 4. Just as he chose us. The first reason. Maybe the translation at the beginning of verse 4 confuses a bit. It could also be translated because he chose us. Bless God because he's given us everything in Christ because, number one, he chose us. Chose. He elected. That's what the word means. In, in the Old Testament, God's election is mentioned over 200 times. 200 times, God elects, chooses different people in the Old Testament. Psalm 135.4, God chooses a whole people, Israel. Uh, another choice he makes, Psalm 78.68, he chooses the tribe of Judah over the other tribes. So he's choosing, he's electing. This is the word in the Old Testament for election. The third thing that you'll see in the Old Testament is that God chooses specific individuals like Solomon to reign. And it's so common that God chooses and elects in the Old Testament. One writer said, everywhere that this word occurs, bakar in Hebrew, everywhere that word occurs, it's in relationship to persons and it denotes a choice out of a group. What is a choice? What is an election? It's God choosing one from the rest or choosing multiple from the rest. That's what he did with Israel. In the New Testament, our word here for choose, eklegomai. Greek is eklegomai. It means to make a choice in accordance with significant preference. To select someone or something for oneself. The voice of the verb in Greek means that God is choosing and he's choosing for himself. He's not choosing for the person being chosen. He's choosing for himself primarily. He's making the choice. That's the verb. Sometimes in the New Testament you see the noun, the elect. That's eklektos. We actually get our English word elect from the Greek eklektos. These are the elect, the people who have been chosen by God for salvation from all mankind. If you take all the occurrences of the verb in the New Testament, all the occurrences of the noun, add them together, 22 times it's mentioned in the New Testament. So over 200 choices by God, over 22 in the New Testament. This is not some minor doctrine tucked away somewhere that, that the apostles didn't think was important. Paul starts his letter with this after his introduction. This is not something for mature believers that 20 years into the faith that maybe they're ready to be introduced to. You read the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. There were believers for three to six months, and he's talking about election, he's talking about end times. This is a doctrine that believers ought to know as soon as possible. Some people even hear it when they're saved. That's part of the gospel message that goes out. 22 times in the New Testament. It's no small, minor doctrine. But Jesus and the apostles teach on this because they want Christians to know. They want Christians to know that it was God who initiated the plan of salvation. It's not you. It's not me. We didn't initiate the plan of salvation. God did it. It's his sovereign act. He chose who would be in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what the passage says. We'll come to the foundation of the world in a moment, but let's just look at a few times that it's mentioned by Jesus and the apostles and other places. Matthew twenty-two fourteen: For many are called, but few are chosen. Many hear the gospel call as it goes out, but only a few respond because only a few are chosen, he says. Mark 13, 20. Jesus is teaching on the end times. He's teaching on the tribulation. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, whom he chose. So he's defining who the elect are. It's, it's the ones whom God chose. God shortened the days. He shortened the tribulation period for the sake of the elect. 1 Peter 1. Listen to how Peter opens his letter. This is the opening verse of Peter's letter. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. You believers who live in these places, I'm writing to you, and you're the ones who've been chosen by God. Of course, you didn't have a lot of false converts yet coming into the church, but he's saying here, I trust that if you say you're a Christian, then you are and you're chosen. Revelation 17, 8. The book of life, it's the book of life from the foundation of the world. You know the book of life with everybody's name written in it that will see the new heavens and the new earth? 
Revelation 17, 8. Before the foundation of the world, God's not writing the book of life as history goes along. Oh, you had faith. You get your name in there. You had faith. No. Before the foundation of the world. He's talking about election, those whom God has chosen. We see this in Deuteronomy 7. If you can go to Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, you need to see this, first of all, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. God's talking about why he chose Israel. And the same idea is carried over into the new. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, there it is, he's chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So he, he's chosen, he's elected a group, Israel they'll be called. He's brought them out, he's chosen them. That's why he brought them out. Verse 7, why did God do that? Was it because they were good, because they were holy, they're never going to sin, they're never going to fall away? Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the people. So it's not because they were some great nation. Verse 8, why did God do it? That because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did he do it? Because he loved them. He loved them. He chose them. He loved them. Well, someone might say, well, that's because he chose the father. He chose Abraham. Well, then why did he choose Abraham? Because Abraham was a pagan. Why did God sovereignly pick Abraham? The Bible doesn't tell us. God's own purpose. Later in the first chapter of Ephesians, it'll say the kind intention of his will. It's his will. He decided he had a good intention for it. That's all we know. He didn't pick Israel for anything that they had done or would do. That's Israel. The same applies in the New Testament for believers. God's electing grace is unconditional. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. You don't deserve it. If you receive God's grace, if you've been saved, it's something you didn't deserve. How did you deserve? How did you deserve it, but your neighbor didn't? How did you somehow get God's grace, but your family member who's unsaved not get God's grace? Were you smarter than them? Were you more godly than them as an unbeliever? Is there anything you could say you were better off than someone else and that's why God saved you? No, that would be boasting. That would be boasting. Well, I had faith. Praise the Lord. The Bible says he granted you that faith. Well, I repented. Praise the Lord. The, the Bible says in Acts that he grants repentance when he changes somebody's heart. So what is election? It's God the Father choosing to put his special electing love on some before the creation of all things. It's God's plan in eternity past to choose whom he would save for his own purposes. We don't know what those purposes are. I don't know why God saved me. I'm just thankful he did. That's what I'm supposed to do is give thanks, praise him. It's also known as predestination. We'll look at that next week. We've talked about that before in Romans 8. Predestination means he marked out ahead of time to determine the path something would take. Also in Romans 8, 29 and 30, foreknowledge, which really means he foreloved. He foreloved. He did not look down the corridors of time, seeing who would believe in him, seeing who would believe in Christ. That means God would have learned something new. He didn't know, so he just looked ahead into the future. That person, okay, that person's going to have faith. Make sure his name's in the book of life. God doesn't learn anything. God knows all things. He foreordains all things that come to pass. And Paul doesn't say here in Ephesians 1 that God looked ahead. Just as he chose us in him. I don't even see anything we've done there. We weren't even around. It was before the foundation of the world. Which means it's unconditional. It's unconditional. God's sovereign divine will did it. And this is a reason to praise God, Paul says. The first reason to praise God, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, is because of what God did in election. It's not something to get mad about. It's not something to debate about, really. We, we can try to persuade people if they don't believe it, but it's right there in Scripture. When people tell me election's not in the Bible, predestined's not in the Bible, there's no use in arguing a lot with them. I mean, the same thing that happened to me, I just show them in Scripture. If they're a believer, then the Spirit's going to work on their heart to believe Scripture. I just show them. And Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 is a good passage to go to. It's right there. It's in Scripture. So when election comes up, Sometimes, though, there are some objections to it. There are some major objections. 
Uh, one of those, just the denial that it's there. Again, you can just show them in Scripture. Before they look at you strangely, just pull out your Bible. Pull out your app on your phone and just show them. It's right there. Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1. Another thing you can do is talk to them about why they came to Christ. Is it something they did? Is it something they earned? Is it something they deserve? Sometimes you'll hear about free will. Free will. So there's a modern philosophical idea that people debate about these days. It wasn't the problem back then. They were slaves. They were submitting to the king. They were submitting to the emperor. No one except a few Greek philosophers went around talking about free will. Just do a word search in your Bible in English and see how many times you find the phrase free will. You won't find it except the free will offering. There's a free will offering, which means if you're already redeemed by God and you want to come up and give an offering that's not one of the scheduled offerings for the year, you can give a free will offering. But this idea that we can somehow thwart God's plans or have a will that's stronger than God, it's just not in Scripture. But there's a lot about God's sovereign, unconditional election. There's a lot about predestination. Are we going to submit to what God says in Scripture and praise Him for it? Are we going to talk about man's free will? Man has a, a type of will. And you know what that type of will is as an unbeliever? Romans 3 talks about that. Ephesians 2 talks about that. We're going to get over there when a man is dead in his trespasses and sins. In which he formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. What kind of will do we have as an unbeliever? We have the will and freedom to sin. Even God's sovereign over sin, though, isn't he? He can limit that sin if he chooses. He can limit, put Satan on a, a stronger leash. But yeah, we have a freedom to choose how much we want to sin. And now when we're redeemed, we have the freedom to choose how much we want to obey God or not. But even God's sovereign over that. So there's no ultimate free will mentioned in Scripture, which means there's no ultimate free will of man. God is sovereign always and will accomplish his will. Some will say, well, this is election in Christ. You see the verse there? You see the verse that says, he chose us in him. And some will say, it's not individual election, but it's Christ is the elect, because he's called the elect in other places. He's the one chosen by God. And then when you have faith of your own free will, you have faith, and then God puts you in Christ. So it's Christ chosen to be the elect. You're not chosen to be the elect, but you come in kind of through Christ. It's not what he says, though, is it? Each individual receives these benefits. Each individual receives redemption. Each individual receives the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a pledge of our inheritance. And all throughout chapter 2, it's you individually. You individually were dead in trespasses and sins. He's not talking to the church as a whole. I mean, he's writing to the church as a whole, but he's saying each of you ought to praise God for what he's done in your life. He's blessed us. And you should praise God individually and corporately when you gather together. But this is no kind of a corporate election in Christ. Yeah, what did he do then? He put us in him, sure. And we're going to look at that, but we're not coming in the back door, in other words. We're not sliding in the back door. You know, Christ is the elect, and somehow we're just sliding in kind of behind him. No, God chose each person that he will save and put them in Christ. That's what the passage says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I struggled with this doctrine, as I said. It took me some weeks, some months. But eventually I had to submit to what Scripture teaches. I had to submit to it. I, I couldn't continue to just fight against it. I want to know what it says so I can do the proper response. James Montgomery Boyce says, When people have trouble with election, and many do, their real problem is not with the doctrine of election, although they think it is, but doctrine of total depravity is their problem. And that's what makes election necessary. In Ephesians 2, we're going to talk about total depravity, but the fact that all of us are born in sin, continue to do sin, and can't save ourselves is why God has to elect in the first place. Of course, it's all his sovereign plan, but it's necessary that God would elect us and move our hearts to believe in him because we would never come. Where? Where, where is this election? Well, it's in him, as I said, it's in Christ. But again, it's not speaking of a, a corporate type of election, but it's saying union with Christ. God elects and chooses us to be united with Christ. It's the location where God chose. God didn't choose us to be saved, and then later he thought, you know what, my son should go 
and save those people I've already chosen. No, no, he already had the plan of salvation in his mind, and then he chose us to be saved, and that salvation occurs in Christ. And the choosing happens in the realm of Christ. We don't get to be chosen outside of Christ. There's not other people in the world who are chosen that won't ever be in Christ. You know, the idea that people somehow can come to God through some other way, or that God will somehow save them even through Christ without them knowing it. The Bible says it's only through Christ. That's why we've got to proclaim the gospel. That's why we do evangelism. Well, it's not saying here either that, that God chose us through our faith in Christ. That would be inserting words into the text. God chose us in Christ. That's the realm in which he chose, but it has nothing to do with our faith, first of all. Our faith will come if he chose us. Our repentance will come. But before the foundation of the world, our faith was not in view here. It's only God's love. It's only his forelove, his, his foreknowing, his loving. Like Adam knew Eve intimately. And God knows his people intimately. He loves them. Well, when did this happen? As I've said, it's before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, before creation. Paul's adding this in just in case people think it's maybe in time. It happens before God ever created. You weren't even in existence yet, so you couldn't earn it because you weren't even around. You've done nothing. You weren't even the world which we live on hasn't been created. Adam and Eve, our oldest parents, weren't there. That's amazing if you think about it. God knew what would happen with Adam and Eve. He knew they would fall into sin. He knew everyone born after that would be born into sin, the Bible says. And he still decided to choose to save some. The problem is not really asking, why don't you save everybody, God? The problem is asking, why did you save anybody? We've all rebelled, the Bible says. We've all turned against God. All of us. Read Romans 3. All of us. The question is, why did God choose to save anyone? Think about it. If you're in Christ, he chose to save you before the foundation of the world, knowing that you would be born in sin, knowing that you would continue to sin as much as you could get away with until you were saved, and even after you were saved, you would still sometimes fall into sin. And yet he still chose to save you? Yeah, that's what it's saying. He knew exactly what would go through your mind when you sin, what would go through your life and the actions that you would do, and he still chose to save you because he's not saving you based on anything you did or didn't do. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his grace. That's what grace is. It's unmerited. You deserve wrath. You deserve eternal punishment, and God saves you. His unmerited grace, his unmerited favor. Well, why do you do that? What's the ultimate purpose? The verse continues. That we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the ultimate purpose. Now, don't think that he's skipping over individuals. Sometimes folks will say, okay, election's in the Bible, but it's just election to holiness. How do I get holiness and blamelessness unless God has chosen first to save me, then I get saved, and then I stand before him, and I'm holy and blameless? Yeah, the purpose is to be holy and blameless, but that's through the salvation of each individual person that will eventually be holy and blameless. That's the ultimate purpose. God wants a people for his own possession so that we might finally stand before him someday and before his throne and not tremble and fall down because we have Christ in us, because we're in him, because God chose us in him. Jude 24 closes out the short letter of Jude like this. Now to him, talking about God, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling away from salvation, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. How can we do that? Because we're in Christ. Well, why are we in Christ? Because God chose. That's as far back as we can go. The kind intention of his will. To make a people for his own possession. That's about all we can say. We struggle because we don't know the mind of God. Why would he do that? Why did he save me and not my friend? Why did he save me and not my family member? Why, why, why? We want to know what God knows. And we're not going to know what God knows. That would make us God if we knew what God knows. We trust in what God has taught us and we believe it. Some will say, what about uh, man's responsibility? That's in the Bible. God commands us to do certain things. Even unbelievers are commanded to have faith and repent. Even though they can't, they're, they're commanded to. And so folks will say, kind of as an objection, 
Well, how do you wrestle with that? How do you struggle with that? I like what Spurgeon had to say about that. Somebody asked him, how would you reconcile man's responsibility with God's sovereignty? And he said, there's no need to reconcile them. They've never fought. They've never struggled. They're both in Scripture, and there appears to be no struggle between them. It's just in our minds. And I agree. They're, they're both in Scripture. He said it was like two train tracks that never meet. They just run parallel. They're both there. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. Not free will, but responsible to do what God says. Why, why, why? Well, we don't know the mind of God, but we know what he's given us in Scripture. The secret things are for the mind of God, the Bible says. The hidden things are for God. But the revealed things are for us, Moses says, for God's people and every generation of God's people after that. So someday, if you're in Christ, you'll be able to stand holy and blameless before God. What a glory that's going to be. And it's going to be because we're in Christ. And it's going to be because God loved us knowing that we were sinners. And we'll be entirely sanctified, entirely justified. How do people not suffer the wrath of hell? Well, they repent and have faith in God and in Christ. Well, how does that happen? God changes the heart. Just work backwards up the chain, right? God changes the heart. Well, why does God change the heart? Because he calls divinely to the people that he's chosen entirely sanctified and justified. Well, I want to conclude with six application points. Six reasons why this doctrine matters. I've already mentioned some of them, so we'll go quickly through those. But you might be asked, or you might think to yourself, does it really matter? Is it that big of a deal? Well, I hope you've seen, because it starts Paul's letter, it is, it is a big deal. It's an important doctrine, because we can praise God for it. We can thank Him. But is it really, is it really relevant to how we live today? I mean, that's nice, theologians and Bible churches and such, but is it really relevant for the, the average Christian today? Six reasons. First of all, it's biblical. It's biblical and it's found throughout the Bible. I won't have much to say about that because it speaks for itself. If it's in the Bible, as a Christian, I want to believe it. I might struggle with it, but I need to get over that and submit to it and believe it. Find out what it's talking about, study the Bible, listen to good teachers who can help you with that, and submit to it. Secondly, I think these are up on the screen. Yeah, secondly, humbling. This is humbling. This is really humbling to sinners. You know, unbelievers hate this doctrine. They hate it. And some believers seem to hate it because it's so humbling. And it exalts God. It exalts the glory of God. We have no part in it? You mean we didn't have the ultimate decision-making when it comes to our salvation? That's what the Bible says. It's humbling. Listen to these verses. You might go there. Romans 9. Just go back in your Bible a bit to Romans 9. Listen to how humbling this is. Romans 9 and 11. If you've never heard this doctrine, you might read Romans 8 and 9 later today. I'm just going to hit the high points here. Romans 9 11. Talking here about Jacob and Esau, the two twins. Romans 9, 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, that's election, so that God's purpose, according to His election, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him, that's God, who calls. So you can't say they did anything to earn it. Even their own decision didn't play into it. They weren't even born yet. That's what Paul's saying there. It wasn't anything to do with those two. Why did he choose Jacob? Well, it says, according to his choice, so that it would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Go to verse 16, 9, 16. He sums it up. So then it, it is election. That's what he's been talking about. So then it, election, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. We want to take a part in it. We want to... We want to give that 1% that is needed to finish out. No. We would be boasting if we could do 1% of the work of salvation. God does it all. It's humbling. It's humbling. Number three, it's preserving. It's preserving. This is more of a just a historical point from church history. Having this doctrine tends to preserve the church from drifting downwards. To false views. Once the free will, supposedly, or just the 
the power of man to participate and to achieve salvation himself, once that comes into the church, even if it's just a 1% man, 99% God, historically when that comes into the church, the church continues to downgrade further and further. And gradually it leads to doctrines like Unitarianism and Universalism. I'm not saying the people who, who are Arminian-leaning are Unitarian or Universalist. I'm saying that once those doctrines come in at large to the church, over time you see lots of drifting. And this also happened in Spurgeon's day. He got out of the Baptist Union in England, mainly because there were so many liberals in there denying the Scriptures, denying the truth of the Bible. But the reason that was allowed to get in is because long ago, before that, people were denying the sovereignty of God. And he called it the downgrade controversy. It just kept downgrading further and further where you had to get out of that denomination. It's preserving. It helps preserve the church because it is humbling. Number four, it teaches monergism. Monergism. Mono is one. Erg is energy or work. And ism is a belief. So it teaches the belief that one does the work of salvation. Who's the one? God. Monergism versus synergism where we work with God to accomplish salvation. Monergism doesn't deny your faith. It doesn't deny repentance, but it's saying God is the initiator. God is the actor. Synergism says, no, we work together. We work together from start to finish. So this doctrine teaches that God does the work of salvation, not us. It's the the good news of salvation that's not just offered, but it's actually accomplished. The erg there, energy, work, God's doing the work. He not only invites people to be saved, but he's already chosen who would be saved, and he's going to accomplish it if they have been chosen. Thank the Lord, because if we could lose our salvation, we would. If we could resist it, we would try. But thankfully, he changes our hearts so that we're willing to come. God elects, God predestines. And then he, he achieves what he's predestined to happen through the work of the Son. Then he applies it through the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord for that. That he's the one accomplishing this work. Romans 8.30 Those whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the golden chain of redemption. Nobody falls out of the chain. It comes from the link of foreknowing to predestine to calling, to justification, to glorification. No one's dropping out along the way. God is accomplishing every step. Yeah, we have a role, but God's accomplishing everything. Even our role is given to us by God, and the power to do it is given to us by God. Romans 8.33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You can't lose it if you're elect, he's saying. If you are elect and you know you are because you've trusted in Christ, you you have that confidence, you have that assurance because you have a changed heart, who can bring a charge against you? How can you lose your salvation? There it is again, God's elect. So God's doing the work. Number five, why does this matter? Because it's comforting. It's comforting. It's why it's in Scripture. I think one of the main reasons it humbles us would be the other main reason, but it's comforting. It comforts us with the assurance of God's love even when we fail to live holy lives. You sin, maybe you sin so badly you begin to question your salvation. And then you pick up a passage like this and it says that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's comforting. God already knew I was going to commit that sin. It doesn't mean you can go sin as much as you want and say, oh, I'm elect. No, you'll, you'll bear good fruit. But when you do stumble, which we all do, you can have comfort in knowing that God chose me before the foundation of the world, knowing that I would sin. It's comforting. So it's a reassurance rooted in our election. And it puts you back on the right path. Eternal security comes from the fact that God has elected and chosen. And who can thwart the plan of God? Once you get on the chain, you're not getting off that. Number six, it guarantees evangelistic success. Last one, number six. You might think, how does that, how does that work? I mean, who wants to hear about election? We don't go preaching the doctrine of election. That's for believers to look back and see what God has done in the past. You preach the gospel. You you preach who Christ is and what he's done and tell people to respond to it. But because God has chosen, people will respond. I'm not saying the person you talk to and you talk to and you talk to will respond. But in general, people will respond because God has chosen people. God has chosen people. Paul goes in. In Acts 13, 48, he goes in, he proclaims the gospel, and it says, 
everyone who was appointed to believe actually believed. If they were appointed to eternal life, they believed. If they were chosen to eternal life, they believed. Revelation 5.9 Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from, from out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He didn't purchase every person who's ever lived, but he purchased from out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That started the modern missions movement. William Carey read Revelation 5.9, said, I'm going to India. I'm going to preach the gospel. Why are you going to India? You're going to die. You're going to be killed. There's a bunch of Hindus that will kill you there. And he says, God has people there. God has his elect all over the world, and I'm going. That started the modern mission movement over 200 years. People have been going around the world. People who believe in election don't run away from missions. We're encouraged by it. John MacArthur calls it the theology of sleep. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to go home and sleep fine because it's not up to him. His job is to preach the word. God will work in people's hearts. Our job is to make sure the message is right and to actually preach the message and teach the message and spread the message. Our job is not to change people's hearts. Our job is not to elect. That's God's prerogative. That's why many of the greatest preachers and missionaries in church history have embraced these doctrines of grace. By grace alone. That was a sola of the Reformation. One more verse. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, Paul writes, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. God has chosen you from the beginning. And he gives thanks that they responded to the gospel. They believe, but God has chosen them from the beginning. So let's accept this doctrine. Let's love this doctrine. Let's praise and bless God because of this. That's the point. That's why it's in Scripture. If you have questions, I'll be here afterwards. You want to talk to me about election, the gospel, Christ, please come and speak with me. How can we reject such a precious truth? How can we run from such a precious truth of God? We can't. We have to humbly submit. And so let's ask God to do that now. Lord, we do submit to your word. We want to submit to your word. For some of us here today, maybe this is the first time, Lord, and I pray that you would, that you would humble us, that you would make us realize you are sovereign. If it's in Scripture, we want to believe it. If it's borne out by proper exegesis, we want to believe it. So help us to submit. And, and those of us maybe who have already been exposed to this, let us not be puffed up with knowledge. Let us not be prideful that we know something someone else might not. But let us humble ourselves because we wouldn't even know what we know today if it wasn't for your grace. We wouldn't even be here learning from Ephesians if it wasn't for your grace. We've done nothing to deserve it. We just thank you for it. We praise you for it. We honor you for it. Help us to remember it regularly that you have chosen your people in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you. We praise your name. Amen.